Hi, this is Jessica Valenti, and you're listening to Abortion Every Day. Today is Monday, March 27th, 2023. We are still on spring break over here. Layla's still on spring break. And so instead of your regular rundown of the newsletter, I am including part one of the interview that I did with the founder and executive director of We Testify, Renee Bracey Sherman, who is so smart and so terrific. And I know you're going to love hearing from her. Um, I do apologize for the audio quality. I am still learning how to work this out. I do need to upgrade the system. I may do like a separate fundraising round to, to try to get a good microphone. But I still think despite the, the sound quality that you will really appreciate everything that she has to say. And I will get that second part to you from that interview this week as well. So enjoy listening to, to just how smart Renee is. And I will talk to you some more about abortion tomorrow. Renee, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me today. I know that you're really, really busy. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. For, you know, for readers and listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with your work, though I have to imagine a lot of them will be, um, but for those who aren't, can you just tell them a little bit about what you do and about We Testify? Yeah, in a large sense, um, I work with people had abortions to share stories and change the culture about how we're talked about, how we're seen, how we're treated. Um, and I do that through narrative work. I do that through um, engaging with the culture work. Um, and of course, engaging with individual abortion storytellers themselves. And my organization, we testify, we trainings to support people to share their abortion stories to know that they're not alone that they're supported Mm -hmm. um and to be visible in the public and remind everyone that everyone loves them it's an abortion but also we've done that but also we've done that behind the scenes where we're working with um people who write television shows and films and show characters who have abortions. So that way we're actually seeing ourselves represented accurately. We worked with politicians to get them to change their language so that they're representing us accurately. What I do is completely to shift the entire culture about um, people who have abortions and anyone who talks about us, thinks about us, um, addresses us. I want to make sure that you're doing it with um, love and support and accuracy. So that's my work. So just a, a small job, just a little bit of work. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy because the culture out there is so wonderful. <laughs> how do you find, how has the work changed since Dobbs? Like, has it, I, I am, obviously I'm sure it's been much more intense and, and much more urgent, but how has what you've been doing, you know, changed in the last few months? Well, I think so much of it is, it, has always been urgent because the way in which people who have abortions, particularly people of color, queer and trans folks, immigrants, low-income folks are seen and are treated um, is often with such disdain and met with criminalization. Mm -hmm. And so now post-Dog, that has become even bigger and it has become a way in which the states, the government is literally telling you how to show up for us and how to treat us. To not give people who need abortions a helping hand or any love and support, but to actually just turn them into the police. 
and to, to put, throw them in jail and to throw anyone who helped them in jail. So it's this mix of, it's a really amazing time in which um, people are sharing their abortion stories and talking about it at a level that um, we haven't seen before or in a, in a long time. Um, it's people are being very open about it, but also that openness can bring harassment. It can bring criminalization. And especially that the, that the government is telling you that that is how you should respond to us, that we should not love thy neighbor or we should not care about the people in our lives, that we should actually just be um, arresting them and snitching on them. And so we have this moment where people are wanting to share their abortion stories and feeling like it's safe, but also the question it is, is at what point does your abortion story become a confession to a crime, particularly if you're seeking an abortion right now or you had one after SB8 went into the fight after the um, Dobbs decision. And and I think that that is something I'm focusing a lot of my time on, but also, also still just trying to build the general culture of love around people who have abortions because the majority of this country, 80% believes that abortion should be safe and legal and accessible. The majority of this country has voted for precedents that wanted to make sure that not only was abortion important and centered, but that federal dollars should cover it. And that's the last several elections, right? Yeah. But the country's gerrymandered all the hell. And so what I want to do is be able to harness the power of people who've had abortions to rise up as leaders in this movement, as the people that we follow and people that we get to see um, and then also engage the public as people to rise up in support of us and in our defense. Right. I mean, it is. I'm really glad that you brought up the I wrote a column about snitch culture right now. Right. Oh. Like the, the way that conservatives are relying on the idea of snitching. And it's such a direct attack on our communities and such a direct attack right. on our ability to help each other and really a, a direct attack on the work that you're doing, as you said for people to be able to feel free to talk about their abortions and, and their experiences with abortion. And so this has always been true, obviously, that there's a certain level of privilege that comes with the ability to talk about abortion. And it sounds like that is even more the case now, right? Like because of the fear of criminal, uh, criminalization and, and who we know gets targeted and arrested. Absolutely. I think one of the things that people don't always get and and I've worked really hard to try to explain this to a lot of folks and they would say well why don't people just share their abortion story like mm-hmm. if everyone just say that they've had an abortion then this wouldn't be a problem well and I would love for that to be the solution but it's not because the reality is that the same barriers that people experience when trying to get abortions such as racism, classism, lack of access, living in rural or conservative communities, fear of criminalization, um, being ostracized from their community, um, immigration barriers, all of those things you still also experience when sharing your abortion stories, right? right? If someone who's undocumented, you know, talks about having an abortion and being undocumented and, and makes that, that actually makes them a target, especially if, they're talking about it in a state where abortion is criminalized and 
and they are pushing back against the state, right? If someone um, is disabled and parenting and talking about those things, right, the state could come in and use that as an excuse to take children away. Like the state will always use our stories and our experiences and our bodies and our lives as an excuse to criminalize us in whatever way it is. And so I want to be able to create ways in which people can safely share, whether it's publicly or just with the people that they love, without fear of repercussions um, or without any sort of, you know, state um, harassment or interventions. And I think one of the things that feels really challenging in this moment is holding this space where people and still talk about their abortions in a really joyful mm. uh, way or in, in an honest way um, when, you know, there is a lot of, of scary stuff happening. And so I think um, so figuring out ways to support people in doing mm. that, like, you know, I've worked with people who've self-managed their abortions and have shared it with reporters and and publicly and can still talk about the 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 joy and the love and support that they experienced during their abortion, but also can do it in a way where um, they're not putting themselves or the people who love them or who help them in jeopardy. And it's a challenge. And it's also a really um, a thoughtful exercise in how do we keep our communities safe? And I think that what feels, as you're talking about this, like snitching, it's it's nothing new, right? Sure. So this entire country has built off of like snitching on indigenous people to take yeah. their land, snitching on people who tried to escape slavery, right? Like police and the government has always thrived off of off of people snitching. And in fact, they tell you that that's the right thing to do is, right? They they're like t- turn someone in. What is critical, and I think stories can be a piece of this, is building it back our communities. So that we understand that you don't turn somebody in because, you know, they are a human being deserving of health care. And what does that actually do? What invites the police into your communities? Um, and they're also going to use that invitation to take people's kids away, to raid houses, to police a community that makes all of us less safe. So we have to stop inviting them into healthcare decisions, into hospitals, and into our communities. And and I think really thinking about the way in which, you know, we can build sto- use stories to build community um, and stop searching, I think is really clinical. How do you think we can ne- negotiate, like, as you're talking about, you know, people sharing their stories with reporters? Um, and, you know, I've, I've been thinking and, and writing a lot about, like, the role that the mainstream media is playing right now. How do we sort of negotiate keeping abortion storytellers safe, like keeping people safe and acknowledging that abortion storytellers from marginalized communities are more likely to be targeted, but not wanting to only have stories out there that are from a privileged few, right? Like, I think we're already seeing so many of the stories that are coming out, you know, these horror stories and everyone's horror story is important, obviously. Um, but it is skewing very much towards white middle class um, women's experiences. And we know that that is not who is most impacted by these bans. Right. And so how do you think that that the media can do a better job sort of negotiating 
keeping people safe while being honest about who is is being most impacted? Well, I think that we have to get reporters and, and, and folks that are elevating the stories to let go of the tragedy porn narrative. Mm. Um, I had issue with a reporter a couple of days ago where, you know, sometimes reporters have an idea of the person, the type of person they want to interview. And I mean, they come to me with literal like, oh, I'm looking for somebody who experienced, you know, being in a car and oh and my god, this and this and in this state and and all of these things. And, you know, they clearly have like read a story or something and that person probably turned them down for an interview, which I'm right. surprising. But right. um, one of the things that feels like a challenge is that they got this this narrative and like puzzle piece that they're trying to to fit and they're not actually taking people who are willing to chat with them at who they are and and allowing them to be their whole selves they have this idea that everyone who has an abortion or has to travel a long distance for their abortion or lives in one of the states where it's criminalized that um they're like sad and depressed and that they just yeah, it just needs so much help, and that actually takes away their agency. That takes away their autonomy, and in fact, that actually like kind of whitewashes their story because they want to do it in this like I don't know, Sarah McLaughlin save the puppy sort of way <laughs> instead of treating them as as whole who have experiences, you know. But also, um, I think what is a challenge is that you know they sort of look at it as like, well, if we put the most tragic of stories out in front, then it will have to change people's opinions. Well, let me tell you, that is what they've been doing for 50 years and even prior to the legalization of Roe. And it has yep. never actually worked. And the thing is, is that the majority of this country is sympathetic to yes. what people are trying to experience or experiencing when they're trying to get an abortion. We have a small minority rule, and that small minority is fueled by racists and white supremacists. And so there's no way in which you're going to talk to them and get them to understand that what they're doing is cruel to people because that was the point to begin with. Yes. All you're doing is actually showing people who have that the 97% of abortion experiences that they're already parenting. They simply don't want to be pregnant. They can't afford another child. Um, um, they, you know, whatever it is, you're telling them that their stories are not compelling enough and that there's stories are not the most needed. I will also say then you then lead people to then say, okay, well, fine, let's legalize abortion, but only in these circumstances. Right. But the thing is that those exceptions have never worked. So again, you are undermining all of us who need abortions in hopes that you can get it for some people when that has not actually worked. This is a strategy that we have 50 years of experience in. It's not helpful. Um, so I think getting people to understand that. To your other question about the safety piece, 
again, that is about people's autonomy. And, mm. you know, forbid you actually talk to people about what it is that, that they want, right? Like people who are doing abortion storytelling, especially that work with us through We Testify, we already talked to them about what their risks are. Right. Um, I've been through more legal trainings than I care to think about on how to support people in sharing their abortion stories in every way, shape, or form, right? So I think the journalists think that they're like doing something extra mm-hmm. to help. No, what we're asking, we know what it is, right? And, right. and you can say, hey, excellent storyteller, what is it that you need in order to feel safe and to do this? And they will tell you. Mm-hmm. But again, you'd have to ask consent. You'd actually have to see the person that you're interviewing as a whole person with autonomy, which again is the larger issue at at play here to begin with. And and I think the last piece is that the reporters who, in my experience, who already think about the safety and the criminalization and all of that, they're the ones who are already elevating the stories mm. um, of of people who are most impacted the ones who are not i can tell you there i with in some cases i've actually had conversations with them mm-hmm. and asked them to agree to certain safety measures and they don't oh my god so then they don't get connected to people right so the reason that they have those stories is simply because for in some cases not all is because they actually don't want to participate in some of the the, the security that's being set up like, right. Are you as a journalist willing to go to jail to protect your source if the state comes? And when I have a reporter say to me, well, it's not going to come to that. Mm. It tells me that they're actually not taking this very seriously. Because if you think somebody like a particular governor who wants to run for president or several of them is not going to, to run a campaign trying to criminalize people because they think it's beneficial for them, then you actually don't get the severity of what's happening right now. 